Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to the latest podcast, this one being for January 2018. I realised that this is the start of my sixth year of doing these particular broadcasts. And when I did the very first one back in January 2013, I didn't really have any idea whether it would last, whether I'd enjoy doing it, or for that matter, whether anybody would bother to listen to it. Well, I'm happy to say that I have enjoyed doing them hugely and that a lot of people do seem to listen to it. So if you're somebody who listens regularly or you're one of those people who dips in now and again when you find uh, you have a bit of time and you kind of remember that they exist, or if you're a first time listener, uh, I'd like to say thank you. Thank you for bothering to, uh, to listen to my ramblings and I hope that you will enjoy both this one and also if you go back through the back catalogue and listen to some of those that you'll enjoy those too. The idea of the podcast really is I know there are quite a few podcasts out there and a lot of the podcasts take the format of an interview perhaps with a famous magician but for me what I wanted to do was I wanted to create a, ve a vehicle if you like <clears throat> for me to have a chat with you about things that I thought you might be interested in. And so I've got into um, the format now of each podcast. I like to talk about things that I find personally interesting or amusing or just worthy of comment. But I also like to put in things that hopefully will give some perhaps some advice or some help so that there's a, a slight instructional element to it too. Because although this is made basically is intended for entertainment, I'd like to think that people will, at the end of half an hour, have gone away with certainly food for thought, but also perhaps with some ideas or some things that they can pursue as a result of having listened to it. And so I hope that this podcast will produce something. And as I say, if you go back and listen to some of the older ones, uh, you'll find there's actually a lot of helpful information that you can access and which will enable you perhaps to do things in your magical life a little bit differently than the way that you have done up to now. But certainly I would really like to thank everybody for listening, and I'm looking forward to doing the, another 12 podcasts this year. It's been my very good fortune for the last 13 years to be the editor and co-owner of Magic Scene magazine. And one of the things that, uh, that I love about my uh, responsibilities as far as the content of the magazine is concerned is that I get the chance to get good quality information from other people in the magic world in answer to questions that certainly I have and that I hope that other readers will have too. And in the latest issue, which is the January one, we were looking at what makes the perfect opening trick for cl the close-up magician. Because I was thinking about this, I was thinking that there's a lot of attention, people who uh, perhaps don't do a lot of this uh, type of close-up, commercial close-up magic, uh, but who want to get out there and do more. One of the things they always worry about is how you approach a group or a table. Um, but it's not just that approach, is it? The most important thing is the first few seconds or the first minute or so that you have with the group once you have approached. Because if you get all the sort of normal things right in terms of which group you approach and where you stand at the table and, and how you get the attention of everybody and so on and so forth. If you get all that bit right, that's good. But if you then have no idea what type of magic to do or how to present that magic in order to 
immediately engage the attention of the people who are now have now sort of been looking at you and have now waiting for you to do something then then the whole thing's a waste of time so i thought to myself hmm be interesting to know what other professional close-up magicians what they do so i approached 10 of them tom wright gary jones chris congreve nick einhorn ian moran john allen andy gladwin Joshua Jay, Pitt Hartling and Paul Gordon. And I asked them, I said, OK, what is, in your view, is the perfect opening trick? You know, how do you do it? And their answers, which are published in, in the January issue, are really, really interesting. And the reason they're interesting is because although the question was kind of, well, what's the perfect opening trick? Actually, for most of them, the trick was not the most important thing. Whatever they did, whatever magic they actually chose to use, they saw it more as a vehicle for establishing themselves and their personality with the group that they are with. In fact, Pitt Hartling was particularly interesting because um, he quoted a friend of his who had a, a theory that actually there is no such thing as an opening trick. It's just that you take you can take any trick and the way that you present it can turn it into an opening trick, um, which is a very interesting thought. But I think for most people, what really came across was that it, it was the establishing. And I think this is a problem for close up magicians that whereas, say, a cabaret performer has a longer time to establish a rapport with his audience and uh, to get them to like him and get him on this on their side. The close up magician may only have a fleeting amount of time with the table. But in that time, he still has to engage, amuse uh, enthrall the audience so that when he leaves after maybe only a few minutes they thought wow that was amazing that was great and so that opening trick and the, and the establishing during that trick of the contact between the performer and the audience is really really important so that was interesting wasn't it but you know I, I go to them asking them what's the perfect trick thinking they would list tricks and some of them did list certain tricks which they've used in which they found to be great opening tricks. But the general feeling was that it was more down to establishing you. So I thought that was a very interesting lesson for all of us. Don't fixate on the tricks. Think more about how you, uh, as a personality and as a performer, are relating to the audience. And that's the most important thing. Two or three years ago, I organised a special one-day event. It was called The Business Magician. And I organised it because I realised that for the last decade or so, I've been doing an increasing amount of magic for businesses and for companies. And, and not just in the obvious way, such as, I don't know, the company's annual Christmas party or summer event or something like that. Yes, I do those but also in a lot more business-orientated situations. Trade shows, obviously, but not just trade shows. Lots of other business events, which are going on all the time and in all of our local areas, but which I suspect that a lot of magicians either don't think about or are not aware that they exist. So I thought it would be interesting to put this day on and to go through the various things that... Um, I've managed to get involved with with local businesses and the reason that I'm mentioning it now is because I, I think that if 
magicians were more prepared to get involved a little bit more with their local business communities. This is either by, for instance, attending local trade fairs or exhibitions that are open to the general public and talking to various businesses about what they do, not necessarily with a sales angle for magic, just trying to understand what the issues are for different types of businesses. For instance, I think the businesses who provide a service find it more difficult at a trade show to promote themselves than those who have a product or something interesting, something physical that's interesting for them to demonstrate and show. Well, therefore, if you want to help those businesses to promote themselves at a trade show, it pays to know this and to realise this because what you can do is to go to the businesses that provide services only and you can turn something that is very one-dimensional perhaps, you know, a, a computer screen with software being demonstrated into a more 3D and interesting and interactive um, thing for the people who are actually at the trade show. So understanding what the issues are for various businesses can help you to target what you do at trade shows. But there are other things too, office openings, product launches. There are lots of ways that businesses interact with other businesses, particularly in a business-to-business situation. And so if you want to get involved in all of that, it's a good idea to find out about them and to get involved with them. So business networking. I've been networking for over 20 years where I go to business network lunches, all the other business there, businesses there, none of them are anything to do with magic. I'm the only magician, which already is a good thing. And for two hours, twice a month, we get together and we all tell the other businesses what we do. And we, you, you create friendships. You, you get to hear about events that are going on. It's, it's a really good way of keeping your finger on the pulse of what's happening in the local business community. And then they start to accept you as a business person as well. And so when then when they do decide that they're having, for instance, they're opening new office premises and they want somebody to come along, not only to entertain people, but perhaps, for instance, one of the ones I did, they want they were changing not only their offices, but they were rebranding. And and part of my remit was, as well as entertaining the people who they invited along for the evening, they also wanted me to push, if you like, the new name and the new logo. And Magic was an ideal thing to do this with. And they trusted me to do it because I'd got to know them at networking events. I'd had the opportunity to informally chat to them about it. So that by the time that the thing um, was became a reality for them, I was going to be the person that they asked to help them because I was the one that they knew. Why would they go online and and look for somebody else uh, if they already had had conversations with me about it and so on and so forth? And they trusted me and hopefully we were getting on at a a sort of human level, never mind a business level. You make friends and, uh, and so on. So it's a really good way to generate extra work for yourself in ways that you might otherwise not have thought of. But I think it is important to to try, if you can, to understand what happens in business. And I think it will vary because I think I would imagine that um, businesses in London may be very different from businesses where I live in the southwest, which are probably different from the Midlands and the northwest, the northeast and so on. Areas will have a different demographic in terms of what those businesses are, 
whether they're manufacturing industry predominantly or whether they're service industries mainly. So getting involved with your local community will give you an idea of what businesses are out there in your local area. You can establish some rapport with them. And yeah, okay, things like LinkedIn and so on are a great way to to connect with people, but there is nothing that can beat actually getting to know the individuals involved. And I have found it's produced, for me, a lot of really interesting bookings and and obviously given me a variety of gig that I wouldn't otherwise have had. But it does mean that I had to get involved with the business community. And as I've got older, I've become actually quite an experienced business person. And, and now I, I do talks to other businesses, nothing to do with magic sometimes, about good business practice. Because I've seen so many things that other businesses do. And having run a couple of my own businesses for the last 36 years, obviously I've got a view about how you can go about doing a one-man business and how you can go about um, doing it in the right way. And so it all comes together. And, and, and I think sometimes magicians tend to perhaps look at what they do in isolation. Well, okay, I'm a magician and if you want me, well, I'll do tricks. Rather than looking at... What are, what does the client want? What are his issues or her issues? And how can I then make the magic solve the, the issues that they have? And you can only do that if you know what the issues are in the first place. So if you want to do more magic for businesses, I really would, certainly as a first port of call, I would go to some networking events if you can. You'll automatically be very interesting because you're a magician. And then get used to talking to people and finding out what they do uh, and in that way, hopefully, you'll start to generate some interesting bookings for yourself. Last month, I went with a couple of friends of mine to a concert by the Bootleg Beatles. Now, I'm not a, I'm not a big tribute band fan as a general rule. I'd rather see the real thing if it still exists. But this particular group, the Bootleg Beatles, who are, are now world famous... I have to say, do an unbelievably good job at not only looking like the Beatles, but also sounding with their music incredibly like them as well. And I found the whole show to be massively entertaining and a really good evening out. We went to, we saw them in a 2,000-seater theatre in uh, in Bristol, and it, it really was great fun. And looking around at the demographic of the audience there was quite interesting, because I thought, well, will it be all older people like myself who remember the Beatles when I was young and there were a lot of people of my age and older but it was interesting to note that there was also quite a, a good spread of younger people too people who had never seen the, the Beatles live of course and who weren't around when they were at their zenith but who had obviously naturally enough heard the music and maybe even got some of the albums and therefore were interested to to hear it reenacted. But the whole concept of a tribute band, I, I've always felt is is slightly odd. I wonder how members of the bands who are who have tribute bands out there performing their music feel about it. You know, how how would would any of them, if like Paul McCartney, what does he feel about himself being portrayed, his songs that he wrote with John Lennon being sung, someone dressing up like he was? In one way, it's probably quite fun or quite interesting, and he's so rich it wouldn't matter financially, I guess. But how do you feel artistically? And I started to think about how it would be if 
there were tribute magicians. So, you know, you only hear about tribute bands in the music industry, but what would it be like if they had tribute magicians instead, or as well? So suddenly there was somebody out there who dressed exactly like Lance Burton and who took his act and basically did his act. Now, if that happened in the magic world, then probably Lance Burton would sue or he would try and get the act stopped because we don't like our our tricks uh, and our routines being, as we would see it, plagiarised and used for somebody else's benefit. Uh, you know, somebody went out pretending to be Paul Daniels or, or anybody else. Would the Paul Daniels who stayed, would, would Debbie be happy about somebody mimicking him and going out and doing shows as the bootleg Paul Daniels? I don't know what the answer to that is, but I would suspect they probably wouldn't be that thrilled. And yet in the music industry, it, it seems to be accepted. Now, I don't know the ins and outs of all of this, of course. I don't know whether the bootleg Beatles have to pay royalties or some sort of a fee to to the estate of, of John, Paul, George and Ringo. I, I, I don't know. Maybe they do. But I'm sure there must be other well, lesser known tribute bands, perhaps, who don't or will try and get away with it. And just trading on the name of whether it's Queen or whoever it is, that they were trading on the name and the popularity of those people to make money and for themselves and to give them an act to do. But it wouldn't work with magicians, would it? Would you go and see somebody who was, who was acting like Lance Burton doing a full evening show like Siegfried and Roy that was a complete copy and that were doing all the same illusions? Would you go and see that? I'm not sure whether you would uh, and I'm not sure whether it would be allowed to be staged. And yet in the music industry, it happens all the time. Funny that, isn't it? One of the most difficult aspects of our job as professional entertainers or semi-professional entertainers is having to quote a fee for whatever the booker happens to want us to do. Even if you have a structure of fees that you refer to, there are often lots of extra bits and pieces or or different elements which we need to take into consideration, whether it's the size of audience, the length of time that we'll need to be there, the distance from home that we have to travel in order to get to the venue. All these things can change what perhaps the acceptable price would be for us to go out and actually do the booking. And this means that every time that we make a quote, we're having to think about what is it going to cost the booker for me to go there. Now, if you have a structure, it may be that you that it's that it's fairly rigid. You say, OK, for this type of show, irrespective pretty much of where it is, I'm going to charge this. But there are times when, particularly if you happen to be having a, perhaps a conversation on the telephone with a potential booker who's discussing what they want. And then you get to the thorny moment when they say, so, you know, so what, what, what do you charge? And you say a fee. And there's a kind of a pause on the other end of the phone. And if you're very, very keen to get the booking, you can immediately think to yourself, oh, no, did, did I quote too high? Am I going to lose this because it's, I've just I've quoted what they think is a ridiculous fee? And you can feel yourself worrying, perhaps, that it's the fee's not going to be acceptable. And when they say, OK, well, thanks very much for that. I'll, you know, if I'm interested, I'll get back to you type of thing. And if you never hear from those that person again, you may come to the conclusion that I got my fee wrong. 
Of course, it may not be that. There could be other reasons why they haven't booked you. But you think I got my fee wrong. So the tendency is then that you start, if you're if you want really keen to get the bookings and you think that the fee is the thing that will either make or break the sale, as it were, then the key thing that you find yourself starting to do is to second guess what the booker can afford to pay. And I think this is a, is a disaster because no matter what a person sounds like, if you happen to speak to them on the phone, of course, a lot of things are on done by email and there's no verbal communication perhaps at all. But if you do happen to speak to a potential booker, their accent, the things that they say about the rest of the event, what else they're they're paying for, can lead you to start to think to yourself, oh, this person's having having a, a disco, they're having a live band, a, a four-course meal, having this, that and the other. They must have a lot of money. I'll charge a high fee, thinking that, well, you know, it's a big event. Well, that may be the wrong thing to do because they may have spent most of their budget already on all the other things and you're just the little last little thing that they want to perhaps have, but not if it's too expensive. So trying to second guess fees, in my personal opinion, really is a bit of a waste of time. The way I've always looked at it, and, and I did this initially simply because I couldn't bear this internal discussion that I found myself having about fees. Oh, should I have, should have been a £10 more, £10 less? And in the end, I thought, do you know what? I'm going to forget. Never mind what this person, what I think this person might be able to afford. I will tell them what I would like in order to come and do the show, a fee that I feel is fair and that I'm happy to go out for. If they can afford it, great. And they want to book me, marvellous. If they can't afford it or they don't want to book me for some other reason, whatever. There'll be another one next week, next month. Another one will always come along. And once I decided in my head that that was the way I was going to go, that I wasn't going to worry about getting this booking, I found it gave me more confidence. I decided that, well, I mean, I was in the fortunate position that I that I didn't need to do shows to pay the mortgage. But nevertheless, the fees were important to me and I wanted to be successful. I needed to earn money through shows and they are high income. You know, that the, the amount of income that shows generate in a year can be quite substantial. But by taking out this element of second guessing and by just being confident that that was the right fee for me to do any particular gig, it was strange. But that there's something about the way that I would quote or if I was talking to somebody the way I would sound that would make it better. The person on the other end would have confidence in me uh, and if they couldn't afford it, well, all well and good. But nevertheless, it it made me feel much more sure of myself. And this argument that I would have in my head went away completely. And ever since then, I've never had a problem with quoting any fees at all. I just quote what I feel would be right for the job. And that's the end of the discussion in my own head. Now, I've commented before about the fact that there seems to be a never-ending torrent of new, in inverted commas, magic coming onto the magic marketplace. And and it's fascinating to me that there seems to be so many people who have ideas that they think they want to bring to the marketplace and make available for sale. And one of the things that any would-be inventor has to decide, unless it's somebody very well established or who has his own business, is how. How is he going to bring this 
brand new idea onto the marketplace so that people can buy it. Now, on the face of it, of course, the web gives you a, the perfect opportunity. You can even create a website if you've got a, one trick. You can create a website for that one trick if you want. You can use social media to get the word out there. You can tap into the, the magic forums online and, and talk about your new idea and, and raise interest like that. So it is possible in a way that was much more difficult years ago. Certainly when I first started and others like me, when we were marketing our own ideas, it was much more difficult and more expensive, it has to be said, to to market your own ideas yourself. Uh, and But today it is easier. But there's also the other side of this. The Internet also creates a massive amount of competition for people's attention and money. Just because you have an idea out there doesn't mean to say people are going to buy it. And there's a certain amount of an infrastructure infrastructure that you need in order to perhaps do mail order or to provide downloadable stuff online you you need to have the capacity to to do that in order to market something and not everybody has the technical expertise or has the necessary software or has the necessary business acumen to do that and if you're going to market your thing things yourself you do need a lot of that in order to survive and to succeed Of course, the other way to do it is to, if you have an idea, is to go to an established dealer who will always be interested in taking good ideas and then trying to strike a deal with them. It depends what you want out of it, of course. You know, if you're in it just to get your name known, then you might be happy for somebody like Alakazam or Merchant of Magic or any of the other big um, suppliers to virtually just take your idea and market it just to get your name out there. But if you want to make some money out of it, then that's when negotiation comes in. Will they give you a fee? Are they going to buy the rights off you? Are they going to give you royalties? How's it going to work? And I think you you need to know, and it it will probably vary from one dealer to another, but you need to know what they need to get out of it themselves in order to put the necessary time and effort into manufacturing something of yours. The idea may be, a simple idea but the manufacturing process may not and so they will need time and they will need money in order to get it to the standard that they can market it that has to be taken into account it saves you having to do it the company because it's well established has a, perhaps a very large database of, of customers to whom they can promote your your particular product you so you don't have to develop that yourself but the amount of money you're going to get out of it may be very small unless you happen to have an absolute winner and you're on a royalty. Royalty amount per unit may be small, but if they sell hundreds or even thousands of them, that's all well and good. The other thing you need to be aware of is that these days magic tricks don't last very long as a general rule. They're, the way that modern marketing, the, the way the Internet has made it work is that you bring out a new trick it peaks within the first three to four weeks. And although you might keep it on your books for, for months afterwards, because there's so much new stuff flooding onto the marketplace, your new trick within a couple of months has become an old trick. And all the people who were initially interested have bought it, perhaps, and then it becomes a very slow trickle because the new stuff has taken its place. And I think you need to be aware of that if you're trying to bring something of yours to the marketplace. So if you have got an idea, 
think very carefully about a whether it's worth marketing b whether you're going to do it yourself c whether you're going to give it to somebody else to market for you and d what do you actually want out of it do you want money or do you just want the fame and finally, here's a thought for 2018. We, we sit at the beginning of a new year and a lot of people like to make New Year's resolutions, of course, whether it be to lose weight or whatever it might be. But do you make magical New Year's resolutions? Do you resolve perhaps that you'll attend more of your local Magic Club meetings? Perhaps you decide that you're actually going to read one new magic book every month. You might decide that you're going to open some of the packages of magic that you bought at last year's Blackpool convention before you attend the 2018 version in February this year and so on. There could be all sorts of things that you will promise yourself. But are you actually going to do any of them? Well, if you want a reality check, all you need to do is to think back 12 months. Were there things that you promised that you would do this year, that's 2017, by the end of the year, you would achieve certain things in magic. How many of those did you do completely, not do at all, only do partially? Because if you can work that out, then it gives you an idea of, the, of how likely it is that any resolutions you're making now for 2018, that you will achieve them. Because quite frankly, if you didn't achieve any of the things you set out in 2017 to do, What's the point in making some for 2018? But a waste of time, really, isn't it? Right, well, that's the end of the January podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you have a good month, and I'll see you next month for some more. Bye for now.